This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, April 25th, 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. The policy choices we make about energy matter a great deal for our future, but the challenges surrounding a broad shift from so-called brown energy to so-called green energy are far less tractable than simply fighting entrenched, dirty energy interests. Andrew Morris, professor of law and business at the University of Alabama, is co-author of Cato's new book, The False Promise of Green Energy. He spoke at the Cato Institute April 21st. Energy issues are really important because energy is part of everything we do. For example, in a 2008 study done at AEI by Green and Mother found that 46% of the energy we use is used indirectly and embodied in products like pharmaceuticals and other forms of health care, food, transportation, and housing. The policy choices we make about energy thus affect not just the size and scope of government, but almost every aspect of our lives through their impact on energy costs. Green energy proponents argue that we need to provide massive federal subsidies and large unfunded mandates to state uh, and local governments and businesses to enable us to radically transform our economy. For example, Ms. Gordon has testified recently before the Senate Subcommittee on Green Jobs and the New Economy that, quote, we are currently in the process of switching our entire energy infrastructure over from capital-intensive, risky, and often highly polluting energy sources to clean, labor-intensive, clean energy sources. It's easy to see why this vision is so attractive uh, to politicians, uh, so attractive that they want to borrow money from our children uh, so that they can spend it now on this transformation. Clean energy sounds so much nicer than risky and highly polluting energy. Uh, Moreover, we're told that we must make this transition or risk being left behind by China. And China, we are assured by the Secretary of Commerce, is investing $12 billion a month uh, in green technology. There's a lot of problems with this view, and I want to just focus on a couple. First, if innovation in green energy is such a great thing, why isn't it happening without the government spending a lot of money and issuing a lot of rules to force people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise be willing to do? Well, in fact, the historical record shows that we don't need subsidies or mandates to innovate with respect to energy. Innovation in energy is a great thing, and we've seen a lot of it in the past 150 years. For example, an improvement in the quality and quantity of gasoline refined from crude oil, which was termed the octane wars, occurred in the 1920s and 30s, driving the price of 100 octane fuel from $25 per ounce in 1934 to 30 cents per ounce in 1935. Uh, per gallon, excuse me, in 1935. Ammonia. The energy used in an ammonia plant today is 30% lower than in a plant, similar plant in 1970, and that's approaching the theoretical minimum for the production of ammonia. Aluminum. The energy per kilogram of smelting fell by 35% from 1960 to 200, and the total energy intensity of aluminum fell by 58%. In steel, energy per ton fell 60% from 1980 to 2006. Between 1900 and 2000, we went from transforming 21% of the energy used to useful outputs when we were engaged in heating things to using 86% while cutting the per unit cost by more than two-thirds. I could go on and on and on. In every area we use energy, we have become more efficient, and we've become more efficient uh, without government subsidies and mandates. So the first question that I think green energy proponents need to answer is why allowing this process to continue is insufficient. In other words, why is the strategy that succeeded for more than 100 years in the United States and elsewhere need to be set aside in favor of a strategy of using the political process to choose energy technologies? And that question is hard to answer. 
The political strategy has been tried, and it's failed miserably. In centrally planned economies from Europe to Asia to Africa, energy technologies have been chosen through the political process and have not worked. When the, where the 20th century saw a proliferation of bad designs, horrific pollution, and unreliable energy, that was mostly in cases where the political process was used to choose the technology. In our own country, the disastrous 1970s Sinfuels program is an excellent example of this. So that answer leads us to the second problem. What green energy proponents are actually proposing to do, despite the rhetoric, is to borrow money from our children and grandchildren and turn it over to politically well-connected corporations like General Electric, which managed the amazing feat of landing a CEO in the White House and paying no federal income tax uh, in the same year as his profits soared. Maybe those were not coincidental events. And Archer's Daniel Midland, which has been successfully farming the federal government for decades. Today's feeding frenzy is close at hand, but this is not something that's unique to the Obama administration. This is the bipartisan history of government-run energy policies in the United States. Now, that's not what Ms. Gordon is going to say she wants to accomplish, but it's what green energy proponents have managed to accomplish thus far. And the reason green energy programs are is that they are classic examples of what Bruce Yandel termed a bootleggers and Baptist coalition in an article he wrote for Regulation Magazine back in the 1980s for Cato. A bootleggers and Baptist coalition is named after the groups that secured the Sunday closing laws that forbid liquor sales in much of the South. Bootleggers like the restriction on legal liquor sales because it closes the stores that compete with them. But they cannot persuade politicians to adopt pro-bootlegger policies aimed at raising prices for consumers without a reason that sounds good to voters. The Baptists in this implicit coalition provide the cover story. They offer a plausible reason to vote for the Sunday closing laws other than lining the pockets of the bootleggers. In the green energy debate, green energy proponents play the role of the Baptists, providing ideological cover for the looting of the current and future taxpayers by the likes of GE and ADM. Now, I don't think that the Center for American Progress, Ms. Gordon, or most of the other proponents of green energy actually intend to pour money into GE's or ADM's pockets, but that is what the record of green energy programs is, and that is what always happens when politics determines what technology we use. So let's look at one specific green energy program that almost no one thinks is a good idea today, although many people on the other side used to think it was a great program, corn-based ethanol. As virtually everyone but Congress and the, United States and the White House know by now, corn-based ethanol is a terrible fuel. It costs more than gasoline. It has lower energy content than gasoline. It causes environmental degradation as growers respond to the subsidy to produce more corn by increasing fertilizer and pesticide use and seriously overuse water resources. It's corrosive and damages engines, pipelines, and other infrastructure when it's transported, stored, and used. And it yields a tiny positive zero excuse me, zero or negative net gain in energy, depending on whether we're having a good year for corn or not. And, worst of all, it dramatically raises the price of food for the poor. Now, it's a great fuel for just one thing. It makes huge amounts of money for ADM and for corn farmers in the Midwest. And it's a really costly way to do that. A Cato study found that it costs each of us $30 to put $1 in the pocket of ADM. Now, I'd be happy to give ADM a dollar if they'd let me keep the other 29 now, no one advocated such an utter failure of an energy policy thinking that's how it was going to turn out. Rather, when corn-based ethanol was introduced, we were promised everything that we are promised today from other green energy programs. We were told that ethanol would make us energy independent, it would produce a cleaner environment, and it would produce lots of good, high-paying American jobs. But failure is what we got from the green energy crowd before, and we will get it again if we listen to today's proponents. Let me illustrate why. 
In 2005, the famous maverick, Senator John McCain, voted against the entire energy bill because of the corn ethanol provisions, which he denounced. In 2006, the famous maverick, John McCain, declared, energy, declared ethanol a vital energy source, having decided that the votes of Iowa corn farmers uh, were more important than principle. Leaving energy policy to politicians is simply a bad idea. I won't just pick on ethanol. It's not the only bad energy choice we've made through politics. U.S. energy policy has been about exactly the things that the green energy crowd talks about today, energy independence, creating American jobs, and keeping up with scary foreign countries like China since at least World War II. In that time, we've seen politicians promise the 100 billion Sinfields program in the 70s would create clean transportation fuels from coal using American workers in high-paying jobs, and they didn't produce a drop of energy. For decades, we've given subsidies to domestic oil and gas producers and favored refiners in politically well-connected districts and imposed restrictions on imported oil and gas aimed at preserving American jobs and protecting us from foreign competition. We created a system of oil import permits in the 1960s that produced the first meeting of the oil producers organization that went on to become OPEC. Talk about counterproductive policies. Raised energy prices and led to silly schemes like the infamous Mexican merry-go-round, in which Mexican oil was unloaded from tankers onto trucks in Brownsville, Texas, driven back into Mexico around a traffic circle, and then back into Texas so that it could technically be considered imported by land, thus qualifying it as for an exemption from the quotas. We have energy bills every few Congresses that always contain provisions designed to raise and provisions designed to lower the price of energy. This wretched legislation is unified only by its theme of doling out favors to the well-connected and its disregard for consumer welfare. We've been subsidizing the current flavor of the month, solar, for decades. Jimmy Carter promised us 33 years ago that by the year 2000, we would get 20% of our energy needs. That's 20% of our energy needs, not our electricity, from solar. We didn't. Faced with this astounding record of failure by the political system in picking technologies, green energy proponents tell us only it will be different this time. This time, the money will go for good technologies, not bad. This time, the money will not go to GE, ADM, and the politically well-connected. This time, politics will choose the right technology. Now, I don't think there's any reason to think that our political system is better today than it was in past decades. We don't have a better breed of leaders who are less beholden to special interests. We don't have wiser leaders now who are better able to see past their fundraisers' needs. What we have is what we've always had, a flawed human beings driven by their need to be reelected, to raise campaign contributions, and to do favors. They will do what they have done every time they've considered energy policy over the past 60 years. They will vote to give money to their friends and to take it away from their enemies. These are systemic problems, certainly not unique to energy, but ones that disqualify the political process from being capable of making choices about choosing technology. But the response to such criticisms is usually that this time we're in a crisis. This time is different. Even as we've been told over and over, we're in a crisis. We don't have time to go through the history of bad energy predictions, so let me just give you two numbers. In 1972, the predict consensus prediction was that we would be using 140 billion barrels of oil per year by 2000. In fact, we were using just 26 billion. The prediction in 1970 was that we would use 1,750 billion barrels of oil between 1970 and 2000. In fact, we used less than 700 billion. We simply have a very bad record of predicting through the political process. Andrew Morris is co-author of The False Promise of Green Energy. You can get your copy at Cato.org.